This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word, let's go to him in prayer to ask his guidance on our study this morning. Father, we're thankful for this time that we have to study your word. For you have revealed yourself to us. You've revealed to us your plan, your purposes for the human race. You've revealed to us uh, the perfect plan of salvation and the plan that you have for our spiritual growth, our sanctification. Now, Father, as we study today, as we reflect upon your word, may we be challenged with our priorities, our purposes, and the plans that you have for us that we might recognize that our life is not about us and our hopes and our dreams, but our life is about serving you and recognizing uh, the gifts that you've given us and the resources that you've given us and exploiting those uh, to the maximum that we may honor and glorify you with our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bible with me to Colossians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3, and we are studying the, uh, verse 15, this issue dealing with letting the peace of Christ, uh, the peace of God rather, rule in your hearts. And we studied this in some detail initially, and now we're looking at the doctrine that comes out of that, the questions that often arise, which relate to how do we know the will of God? How do we know what God wants me to do? All of this really relates to the basic topic of how do we make decisions? How do you make decisions of what you will not do and what you will not do in your life? How do you make decisions about how you will utilize your time? As uh, we go through life, we often talk about the fact that time seems to go faster, and we just wonder where the time goes. And the scripture says, as in the verse preceding a verse we know well, the verse that talks about being filled by means of the Spirit, the preceding verse talks about redeeming the time. It's so easy to uh, fritter away time. It's so easy to waste time. It's also easy to get a little over-obsessed with doing everything right and becoming uh, a spiritual workaholic or a just a workaholic simply because we're so afraid we might waste a minute or two. There has to be time for uh, recreation, for relaxation. This is why God built the Sabbath principle into the Mosaic law, was to force a time of rest, which emphasized also a time of dependence upon God for everything uh, in life, a time to withdraw from the uh, rush of everyday the everyday routine and to reflect upon 
who God is and what he has done for us. Now, the Sabbath is not a part of the church age uh, mandates, but the principle of that time of rest still is. So we have to learn to balance. That's probably the toughest word to deal with when we talk about priorities and decision-making. And some of the decisions that we make are not always that uh, monumental. They're not always that huge. Sometimes we're just talking about the day-to-day decisions. And so many things in life, in our lives, turn on small decisions. And those small decisions often can uh, direct the uh, significant areas of our life. So it's not always the big decisions that we're talking about. It's just how we manage our time, how we manage the resources that God gives us on a day-to-day basis. All of this is part of understanding the will of God because the real issue here is how do we make decisions in light of, of God's will. So I started this off since it's been three weeks since we were here. Just a little reminder that uh, we've often heard this addressed in terms of the principle that God has a perfect will for every, that's the key word, every decision in our life, that God has a geographical will, an operational will for each one of us at every moment, every second of every day. And therefore, we should live in the very center of God's will in each of these particular uh, areas, whether it's geographical or operational and that God always reveals to us precisely what uh, what this will is. And one of the keys to discerning this will is an inner state of peace or tranquility. And this verse reads, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Often that's where the exposition stops. It just quotes that part of this verse, the idea being that if we want to know God's will, then we need to let God's a peace act as that umpire to guide and direct us. And so as we go through decision-making processes, we often think that the way to know what God wants us to do is to wait for this peace that passes all understanding that we have a sense of tranquility and harmony with God, and that's how we know what God's will is. And that's not what the Bible teaches. There are many times in Scripture when when people knew what exactly what God's will uh, was as it was revealed to them, and they really didn't have a whole lot of peace and harmony about it. We can think of Gideon, and we can think of Jonah. He really didn't have any peace and harmony. The example that I focused on when we started this was the Lord Jesus Christ, who never sinned, was never out of fellowship, never made a a wrong decision in the entire course of his life, and yet he was absolutely... Um, uh, overwhelmed with emotional response as he anticipated the cross. And it is not that emotion that was stirred up that was what was wrong. That's typical of our humanity. What would be wrong is to re- respond to that emotional pressure in uh, a wrong way as defined by by Scripture. But he had uh, such turmoil, emotional upset, uh, as he anticipated the cross, and we went through the uh, verses on that, that um, uh, there, there's, he's not making decision on the cross based on whether or not he has this kind of uh, uh, inner tranquility that is often presented in this erroneous way of looking at, at God's will. 
So what I'm teaching is that this form is not biblical. It's a subtle form of mysticism. That word is often misunderstood. I'll talk a little bit more about that probably next time. Uh, that mysticism is another authority system. It is uh, a, a human viewpoint authority system. There are three. One is rationalism that is based upon our own reason. Another is empiricism based upon our own external experience. And then mysticism rejects the logic and the objectivity of either the use of reason or the use of experience and goes to a an authority based internally on how we feel or perceive uh, certain things based r- truly on, on on feelings and identifying those feelings uh, with with the movement of God. It is a form of idolatry. In fact, if this verse was saying what many people think and teach that it is saying, then it would contradict what Paul is uh, correcting the Colossians about in chapter 2 because the, one of the dangers the, in this false teaching that was part of the problem in Colossae was mysticism. So he is saying, definitely saying something different. He's saying that this peace of God is something that should uh, act as, uh, truly act as an umpire, but we have to understand what the peace of God means. And it's the same thing that's said over in Hebrews 12:14 that we are to pursue peace with all people. It is a, an objective rule. Now that fits the context much better than the idea of some internal peace. If you look at the context with me, in verses uh, 12, 13, and 14, Paul draw, is coming to a conclusion here about the new life that is to, and the qualities of the new life of the believer as the elect of God, that is, as the choice ones of God. And uh, uh, I'll get into some of the issues related to that terminology later on. Some of you are chuckling because you remember what I covered on Thursday night in the doctrine of the Magnum ice cream bar. For those of you who didn't listen, you need to go back and listen. Choice ones of God, holy and beloved, that is set apart and recipients of God's love, we're to, and here we have an an aorist imperative, we're to do something. This is the will of God. You're supposed to put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, and bearing with one another and forgiving one another. That's applying the rule of peace. When there is not peace between those in the body of Christ, then it's usually because we are not bearing with one another or putting up with one another or forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven us. And then in verse 14, Paul says, above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of actually maturity. It's the part of spiritual growth. And it's after that that he says, let the peace of God uh, rule or govern your life. So it is because we have peace with God in reconciliation, because we have peace with God, we have peace with others in the body of Christ, then when we get at cross purposes with other believers, and that happens at times, it happens in families, it happens with coworkers, it happens with uh, people who have been friends for a long time, they suddenly, for whatever reason, uh, offend or take offense with one another, and instead of there being peace, there is a lack of harmony, there is 
uh, chaos in, in the relationship. Now, there are some things you can't always fix. There are people who are going to go into various forms of carnality, and they're just going, or they're going to reject truth, and there will be a uh, state of uh, disharmony, uh, a state of antagonism, a state of enmity between you and some believers, and there's nothing you can do about it, and quit feeling guilty about that. It is choices that other believers make that set up this problem. And as a result of that, we just can pray for them and pray that God will uh, work in their life to uh, open their eyes to the truth and that they will uh, face the arrogance of their own actions and return to a walk with the Lord in terms of, of humility. We can pursue peace only to a certain extent, and then if others do not respond, then there's nothing more uh, that we can do. Having said all that, I began the study of the doctrine of the will of God last time, talking about the uh, position that is frequently taught, has been commonly taught in many evangelical circles for many years, and that's the idea of living in the center of God's will, often represented graphically by this circle with a dot in the middle that we have to be living on X marks the spot of God's will or we're out of God's will. We may be out of God's will a little bit or a lot, but if you're living in carnality and you miss God's will, you pick the wrong college, university, pick the wrong spouse, pick the wrong career, then large decisions like that mean that yeah, you're just going to be off for the rest of your life, and you'll never really experience the uh, best that God has for you in your life. And that is, if we think about that, that's just such an affront to the grace of God that we could make such a uh, uh, such a decision that it would just completely destroy, damage the rest of our life. Now, I'm not saying there aren't consequences to bad decisions, but what I am saying is that God's grace always provides uh, some sort of recovery. God's will doesn't work this way, as we see in the Scripture. Uh, This idea that God has a a specific will for how and what each... um, believer thinks that God has a specific operational will for each believer or that he has a specific geographical will for every believer at every time. It's those words every that you have to pay attention to. What I am saying is that there are times when God does have a specific operational will or geographical will for certain people at certain times. You can't miss it. Jonah tried to miss it. That's your classic example. Jonah tried to miss it. Hmm, he didn't do very well at trying to miss it, did he? He couldn't avoid it. Because when God wants you at X marks the spot, you can't choose to be anywhere else. God will get you at X marks the spot. So you don't have to worry that somehow you're going to make the wrong decision. Just trust God. And even if you do make a make the wrong decision, it won't work out. The last time... Uh, I taught on this. I finished with, uh, concluded with the example of the decision-making process that I went through in going to Connecticut back in 1998. Another episode that I often refer to and am reminded of when I talk on this topic occurred when I was a senior in college, and I was uh, had had spent the previous two or three summers working at Camp Penile as a counselor and director of their. Uh, uh, 
what they called their trip camps, canoe trips, backpacking trips, things of that nature, taking groups to Colorado, uh, things like that. And I had spent about three summers doing that, and I was uh, a little weary of that. And I had a favorite history professor who was taking a group to uh, to Europe that summer. It's a six-week study tour, and I had really wanted to go on this, this trip, uh, especially with him. Uh, he had studied in Germany, and we would be, spend a lot of our time in Germany, and I really anticipated that. And so I had told uh, Gordon Whitelock that I would not be available to uh, lead trips that summer as far back as September, the in, in, you know almost the end of the last uh, summer, because I would be going on to summer school and going to this particular class. Well, this study tour on uh, and and all through the spring, as uh, as chief, as we all call Gordon, as chief was looking for someone to lead the trip, trip camps, he couldn't find anybody, and that was weighing on my conscience. That's one way God works on you. You can say, well, that was the Holy Spirit. Well, in an indirect manner, yes, that's true, but it's through the norms and standards that God that you have in your soul that have been put there uh, from the study of the Word not because you're getting new revelation. And as the spring t- moved along and they couldn't find anybody to uh, lead the tr- trip camps at Penile, I was beginning to feel a little concerned about that. The deadline for signing up for this uh, trip, to, to having enough people to make the trip go, was around the 15th of May, I think, something like that. I don't remember exactly. On May 13th, uh, there was one person signed up for the trip. Me. Nobody else had signed up. So I had thinking about uh, responsibilities and ministry and serving the Lord. I thought, well, I think probably the Lord's giving me a little message here. I need to uh, work another summer leading trip camps at Penile. So I called up Gordon and told him I would do that. And I called up my professor and told him I would not be going on the trip. When I saw him a week later... Fifteen people had signed up on Monday. I felt like Jonah. So even when we think we're making a decision for a lot of good reasons, that may not be what God wants us to do, and God may want us someplace else, and as much as we try to be in another location doing something else, Uh, God's going to get us exactly where he wants us to be, and we're not going to be able to avoid it. So figuring out if God has a geographical will for you at a specific point in time, it's not some sort of... uh, you know, shell game that God plays with us. You know what I mean by a shell game when you have the uh, 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 carnival guy with the three walnut shells and the pea under one and he's moving them around and you have to guess where the pea is. God doesn't approach his will for our life in that manner. We're not in a guessing game with God. He wants it. He's going to make it very clear uh, when he wants us in a diff- go in a specific direction. But he doesn't do it through some form of special revelation because that would violate the principle that he has uh, elucidated in his word that revelation has ceased. 
You know, sometimes you'll talk with some people and they say, well, you're putting God in a box. No, I'm just taking God at his word. I'm not the one who's saying God's revelation ceases. That's what the scripture teaches. I'm just taking God uh, God at his word. So when I make these statements that God uh, and critiquing the other view, we have to pay attention to all of those universal words that I have in there. Uh, each believer, every believer, uh, that all the time at every decision, there's always one right decision. Everything else is either a little off base or far off base. Um, so that's what I covered the last time. Now, also, the first point, which is all I covered, is that we have some technical terms to use in relation to the will of God uh, that we talk about. One is God's sovereign will, which has to do with uh, what God determines will take place. Sometimes this is called by theologians the decretive will of God, which just means what God has decreed will happen as opposed to what God expresses his desire uh, to be. It's sometimes it's called sovereign will of God, other times it's secret will of God because it's not something that has been uh, revealed to us. We can only know the sovereign will of God after the fact. The second category is God's moral will or his revealed will. This is included in the scripture. Uh, this is what God says he wants us to do. Uh, this re- is referred to his revealed will, his desired will, and it is expressed through special revelation and in the scripture. And what we find when we look at the scripture is when God does have specific things he wants a person to do, he reveals that to them through special revelation. So his specific will, functional will, operational will, geographical will that we find in the scriptures is always expressed through some sort of special uh, revelation. We looked at passages like Ezekiel uh, 4, 1 through 4, where God is it's still in a time of special revelation. He's talking to an Old Testament prophet, Ezekiel, and he tells Ezekiel exactly what he wants him to do and how he wants him to do it. You have other passages such as Acts 10 where uh, God reveals to Peter a new dimension of his plan that is now going to include Gentiles within this new spiritual body uh, that is we call the church. And so he, uh, he sends an angel who appears in a vision. This is a time-honored means of special, uh, special revelation. And then he confirms that, and I'll talk about that a little later on, that whenever God does something in private in the scriptures, he always confirms it through various external objective events. Even when God tells somebody something in private, which is uh, how people always say, well, God spoke to me. He wants me to do this. Okay, my first thought from studying Scripture is then if God wants you to do that, what's the objective external evidence? Well, usually there is none. It's just somebody felt, moved. It's all subjective. This is nothing but pagan mysticism that's been sometime somehow uh, baptized in Christian holier-than-thou terminology. And then the fourth category I talked about was God's overriding will, which is the example of Jonah, That he and the example I gave is that even when we choose to do X, God wants us to do Y, 
And uh, we're not talking about something that's a moral decision or something that is a spiritual decision, but something that where God has a role or function for us, and that's uh, he will override whatever uh, decisions we may be. Now, in this graphic, which has a couple of parts, I'm, uh, whoop, went right past it, didn't I? Try to get the parts in there right. Okay, we have... God's sovereign will, what he reveals to us. This, these are all those commands in Scripture, the thou shalts, thou shalt nots, the mandates like we have here in uh, Colossians 3, 5, put to death your members which were on the earth, um, but now you yourselves are to put off all these things in verse 8, a list of sins, and then uh, verse 12, therefore is the elect of God holy and uh, beloved put on certain qualities and characteristics. So these are all part of the mandates. That's God's sovereign will for our life. It's expressed through revelation. We know exactly what God wants us to do. Uh, then we have, and that, uh, excuse me, that's God's moral or revealed will on the uh, on the right side. I'll just claim that that little glitch was due to a jet lag. Still crops up. Hey, it's only been five days. I'll use it if I if I've got it. Um, God's sovereign will, though, is what he is also includes God's permissive will or what he allows people to do. We don't know God's sovereign will until it happens. Um, we'll put this chart together. Let me see. I've got the graphics. Oh, got one more. There we go. Well, we're going to define the will of God in terms of a large circle. Because that circle is really defined, as I say in the upper left, uh, by the mandates, the imperatives, and the prohibitions in Scripture. There are over 560 imperative mood verbs in the, in the New, New Testament. That's, uh, that's, uh, that's just from Acts to, uh, Acts to Jude. That's a lot of commands. Some of those are prohibitions. But there are more ways grammatically to express a command in the Greek than just using an imperative mood verb. You have imperatival participles. You have uh, sometimes you have subjunctives that are used as a sort of a first-person plural. Let us do this, and that's a, another way of stating a, a command. So there are a lot of different ways that God expresses His will. But there's a minimum of 565 commands. Uh, specific imperative mood verbs. So there's probably a thousand or more in the scriptures that that define this circle of what is it, what is God's revealed will to us. When we're walking in the light, we're walking according to scripture. We're obedient to scripture. We're in fellowship. We're doing all of the things that God says to do. We're praying without ceasing. We are walking uh, in peace with one another. We are forgiving one another. We are consistent in our study of the word. All of these many, many, many different things that are part of what should characterize the maturing, uh, spiritually oriented believer, then we're in God's will. When we sin... We're out of fellowship. We're out of God's will. We're living on the basis of the of this flesh, the sin nature. And anything and everything that we do when we are energized by the flesh is, by definition, out of God's will. 
It doesn't matter if you are doing what God says to do, such as study the Word, memorize the Word, pray, witness, whatever. If you're doing it in the energy of the flesh, you're still out of fellowship, so you're not in God's will. You can do what God wants you to do, but do it the wrong way, so you're out of God's will. That's where we need to be focusing our energy. Too often when we ask the question, what's God's will, we're thinking in terms of those big issues in life. Uh, someone to marry, where to live, whether to buy this house or that house, go to this school or that school, accept this job offer or that job offer, all of these different things. When, the, when we look at the Scripture, the issue of the will of God is always oriented towards that moment-by-moment uh, life, that moment-by-moment walk of dependency upon God the Holy Spirit that is the going, that, that's going to bring forth uh, a, the character where God the Holy Spirit is going to establish and build in us the character of Jesus Christ. So inside of God's will is basically walking in fellowship with God in obedience to the Word. Outside of God's will is when we're out of fellowship. Don't worry about the other stuff. That comes. I'll talk about decision and making those areas in, uh, as we go through this. So we have some verses I want to just hit on briefly to talk about God's sovereign will. The first comes from Old Testament book Daniel. And Daniel, this is after uh, Daniel has uh, interpreted the dream for Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar has been, I, I think this is a passage where Nebuchadnezzar has been insane for seven years. He comes out of his insanity and he has a little statement of praise as he's learned to uh, submit to the authority of God, to the sovereignty of God, because God has basically slapped him down for seven years, and he's been eating grass out in the field. And now he recognizes the authority of God. And in Daniel 4.35, he says, And all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, but he, that is God, does according to his will in the host of heaven. That relates it to the angelic conflict. The term host of heaven really means the armies of heaven. The armies of heaven relate to the angels. Uh, God does his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what hast thou done? God's in absolute, complete control. That doesn't mean that God is manipulating every sentient being, that is, those with intelligence, angels and human beings, as if they have no volitional responsibility. But it does mean that ultimately God is in charge and he is in control of history. And it doesn't matter what political decisions are made. doesn't matter what judicial decisions are made. It doesn't matter how chaotic things appear to be around us. God is in control, and God's control, God is often teaching us through the chaos of human events that we really need to get our eyes off of human solutions and onto divine solutions. And there are a lot of people who've been upset this last week because of the Supreme Court decision, people who've been upset for the last three or four years, if not longer, on political decisions. 
But I think one reason God continues to let this country uh, spiral down into this morass of socialism is because Christians put too much focus on the political solution and not enough on the spiritual solution, and their hope is based on man and not on God. And until believers in this country start getting their focus on the Lord and off of their their own little self-absorbed issues, uh, we're going to continue to go downhill. Uh, because it's all about self-absorption in this whole culture, and the church is becoming the classic example. The church is more self-absorbed than most pagans are. It's just unbelievable what's happening in Christianity among those who really ought to know better. Uh, God is still in control as Nebuchadnezzar could never recognize, even though for him personally, he had had seven years of absolute chaos. He recognized God was still the only one who's in control. Proverbs 21.1, we're told the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. Whoever the king is or president or prime minister, whether it's somebody who's uh, uh, crazy like uh, I'm a nut job over in Iran or whether it's somebody who is uh, trying to do right things, such as uh, some leader in the Western world, some uh, congressman, senator who is oriented to the word, trying to do the right thing, or whether it's a president or Supreme Court judge, ultimately God is in control. And he is the one who is moving history according to his plan and not according to your plan or my plan or somebody else's plan. And he allows things within his sovereign will. That's a category we call his permissive will, allowing uh, morally free agents to make bad decisions. This is why there is evil in the world. And often people look at things that are going on in the world and they say, how can a good God let these things happen? A good God lets these things happen because he allows his creatures to exercise their moral responsibility, which means that just as they're free to do good things, they're free to do evil things. And to stop that would bring a an end to human history and human civilization. And so God in, in, in his will is allowing people to make really bad decisions that bring horrible consequences and suffering into the lives of untold millions because that's all part of the lesson that God is demonstrating within the angelic conflict, which is the greater good. Uh, Revelation 4.1 is another passage on the sovereignty of God. If you recall from our study, this is when you have a major shift from the things that are to the things that will take place after these things. This is the opening verse of the prophetic section of Revelation 4. And the Apostle John says, after these things, that is chapters 2 and 3, which summarize the uh, trends of the church age, he says, after these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice I heard like the sound of a trumpet uh, speaking with me and this is probably uh, somewhat symbolic of the rapture of the church. Come up here and I will show you what? What must take place after these things. This is the sovereign will of God. There are certain things in history that must take place. There are other things that are optional. Let's say that your next-door neighbor 
is eventually going to become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and spend eternity in heaven with you. Right now, they're a crazy liberal Muslim or whatever, and you don't really like to even talk to them. But you have a great privilege and opportunity to be part of the process God's using in bringing them to a knowledge of the gospel. And you have a choice of whether or not you're going to uh, get to know them and witness to them. And if you do so, then you will have the privilege and blessing of being a part of God's grace in that individual's life. If you don't, you're not going to be a part of it. You'll miss out on that aspect of blessing and privilege in your life. They're eventually still going to get saved. It's not dependent on whether you witness to them or not, but it's an issue of whether or not you're going to be obedient to the Lord in terms of his will for your life, in my life, in witnessing to those who are unbelievers, those who we may not uh, be too attracted to. Um, I often think about this example. There was a, when I was in college, I'm telling college stories today. It's not because I'm old, it's just that they fit. <laughs> I was in, went on an ROTC scholarship, and this was back during the Vietnam War, and there was a lot of uh, hostility towards the military all over this country. And there were people on campus at Stephen F. Austin, even in the deep hill country, that uh, didn't like the military. And there was one particular long-haired hippie guy who was constantly uh, yelling things or making snide remarks or throwing food at people who were, you know, because if we were in uniform, which we had to be on certain days of the week, he knew that there was nothing we could do. We couldn't fight back. So we just had to sort of suck it up. And um, about Five years later, I was sitting in a first-year Hebrew class at Dallas Seminary and was get, talking to this guy sitting next to me, and I asked him what his name was, and he told me, and I, said, and I thought, there could only be one. <laughs> really? I said, where did you go to college, Stephen F. Austin? Really? How did you get here? He said, well, he was saved through uh, Youth for Christ his last year in college. I said, really? I said, um, you know, I think I remember seeing you a couple of times. He said, I don't remember anything about my first three years because I was so strung out on drugs, which time I had one of the longest prayers of thanksgiving to God in my life because we were not very nice to him. I mean, this, this guy was just not the person you would ever want to spend eternity in heaven with. But God's grace was just as significant for him as for me. So you never know. Uh, I could have been had a different position in relation to him if I had been uh, focused on some aspects of uh, God's word, but that wasn't where my head was at that particular time uh, in my life. So uh, there are certain things that must take place that will take place. There are other things that are optional in terms of our own decision-making. And the issue for us is, are we going to exercise our decision-making responsibilities on the basis of God's word so that he can be glorified uh, in our life? Ephesians 1.11 says that we've obtained an inheritance having been predestined. That has to do not with God choosing who will be saved or not, but that our ultimate destiny with him is set. Uh, that we have obtained an inheritance having been put on a course towards a certain destiny according to his purpose 
who works all things after the counsel of his will. Again, God works out, oversees, supervises all things according to his will, which is based upon his omniscience. He knows all things, and so he's able to make the right decision in every category. Uh, Romans 9.19, Paul talks about the fact that uh, no one can resist God's will. That's his second question there. So moving on in our understanding of this doctrine, the specifics, point number three, the specifics of God's decreed or sovereign will are secret, unrevealed, and unknown. You, we can't know it ahead of time. They cannot be known until after the fact. Once something happens, we know God allowed that. That was his decree. That was his sovereign will. It doesn't mean that's his desired will. It's that what he allowed to take uh, place. Uh, human history is the outworking of this decree of God. His sovereign will includes his permissive will, which allows for the actions of free moral agents, people like you and I who are volitionally free, and we can make decisions that are contrary to his revealed will. That's called living uh, in uh, sin. Let me just show you some examples of God's moral will, his revealed will. He told Adam and Eve, don't eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was his revealed will. He told Abraham that he was to leave Ur of the Chaldees and leave his family behind and go to the place God would show him. He told the Israelites that they were to enter the land that God had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they were to annihilate the Canaanites. And he... Also, in the Mosaic Law, has the mandate, do not murder, do not commit murder. However, in God's sovereign will, he allows the freedom for Adam and Eve to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and to plunge the human race into sin. He allowed Abraham to leave her of the Chaldees and to drag along his father, but because his father was there, he stayed at, a, at Haran for a few extra years, and he took Lot along, which was the source of subsequent problems. See, God often lets us only partially obey him, but later on it shows up with some other problems. He, uh, the Israelites, instead of fearing God, they feared the Canaanites and failed to trust God, and so that generation was not allowed to enter into the land. And in violation of the mandate not to murder, God's sovereign will included the illegal execution of Jesus on the cross at Golgotha. So God's sovereign will is not something that is, that is known ahead of time, only his revealed will. So when we raise the issue in our life as to what we are to do, the issue is we're to study the word, we're to walk with the Lord in the light of his word, we're to walk in the light. We are to follow all of these mandates of Scripture. And if we are doing that, then God is going to make his will and the path clear to us. That's the principle of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. That's putting doctrine first and putting your spiritual life first. And then he will direct your paths with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to reflect more upon your will, what you have revealed to us, recognize that you are the ultimate authority in the universe and in our lives and that we need to 
become oriented to your authority through your word. And it is only through your word that we know your will. And it's only through your word that we know the truth. And the truth is to be our guide. Father, we pray especially today for our nation anticipating the celebration of our uh, anniversary of our independence from England, recognition of the foundation of freedom that our forefathers gave us. And Father, this legacy is at risk today as this legacy of freedom has been at risk so many times in the past in many different civilizations, many different eras, because there's always the threat of tyranny. There are always those who seek to uh, take power over others and to enslave others so that the reality of freedom and liberty in human experience is limited. It's rare. It is uh, something that is uh, really priceless and yet is so easily lost because we so easily want to Uh, live as those who are in bondage rather than those who are free. Father, we pray for anyone here this morning who may not be saved, may not have certainty as to their eternal destiny, that you can know your eternal destiny. You can know what will happen at the time of physical death. You can know where you will spend your life forever simply by trusting in Jesus Christ. Scripture says that we can know of our salvation. We can have the assurance of our salvation. And Scripture says that we cannot save ourselves, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for us and paid the penalty for us, so that by simply trusting in Him, we can have eternal life. And this is real freedom. This is true liberty. Because as Paul says in Galatians 5 1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And that is the only freedom that is worth having. It is a foundational spiritual freedom that is free from death, free from the tyranny of sin, and free from the um, being bound to a merely a temporal existence. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here that is unsure of their salvation, that they would take this opportunity to make this sure and certain by trusting in Christ alone for their salvation. Now, Father, we pray as we celebrate and pray in the continuation of our time together this morning through lunch, through our prayer time. We continue to pray for our nation, and we know that you control history, and even if that is for ill in terms of our own personal desires and prosperity of this nation, we know that we can trust you and that you will be glorified in all that transpires in history. And so we are to learn to trust you and relax upon you and your provision, knowing that you and you alone can give peace, stability, prosperity, and freedom. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand to get, uh, for a minute, just a minute. I think the kids are going to come in and join us. Uh, Mark, are they y- y'all ready to come in? We're going to, in honor of the um, fact that this is uh, Independence Day that we're celebrating this week, we're going to close this morning by... Uh, standing together and uh, saying the Pledge of Allegiance, and then we will sing the Star Spangled Banner. Okay, so we're going to have all the kids in as part of this. I will lead in the Pledge of Allegiance, and then Alan will come up, and we will sing together the Star Spangled Banner. Let's stand.
I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Miss us in closing prayer and also give thanks for the food. Bow with me, please. Father, we have so much this day to be thankful for, primarily your grace. We thank you that you have returned Robbie to us. We thank you for the exposition of your word this morning. We thank you for the privilege and opportunity to continue to fellowship together, both in the breaking of bread and in our supplications to you after, for our nation and for us as a church and us as believers. We ask that you bless in this time, and we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.